Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. It's sick. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Hamas' stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields, and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of them. That was President Joe Biden last night delivering his uh, address to the nation on the uh, situation in Israel and uh, the need for support for Israel and Ukraine. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Today we have David Jolly going to be talking with us. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback we got this week. On our interview with Representative Jasmine Crockett, Joe Tarapchik writes, Great interview. So happy to hear from her after the viral video went out. Tammy McAllister writes, Jasmine, please run in 2028, and when they try to curb your fire, get hotter. Kenny Jansen writes, I hope I live long enough to see you run for president. All right. Let's get to our two big things. So last night, Joe Biden gave a speech. You guys listen, watch the speech? I did listen, actually. I thought it was pretty good, you know, and uh, he's getting praise from all over the place, even conservatives like Brit Hume, people calling it perhaps his greatest speech. And it covered everything from America's role in the world to him serving as the comforter in chief here at home to people who, no matter what side you're on, he reinforced his full support of Israel. He uh, pushing for a $100 billion aid package for both Israel and Ukraine. And at the same time, he's, quote unquote, urging restraint so as to avoid inflaming an already volatile situation and suggests that the United States don't make the same mistakes that it made after 9-11. And I think he's referring to 16 years of war in Afghanistan and Iraq, which cost a lot of money and a lot of lives. But I think the way he framed it, first part was just unequivocal support for Israel. The second part was, okay, that said, guys, we don't want World War III here. It's a tough spot for him to be in, you know? Yeah, um, I haven't heard a president give a speech like that in my lifetime, and uh, I think most people alive today haven't, because probably the last speech like that would have been going back to FDR. He's talking about two wars at the same time, one in Europe Mm -hmm. and one in the Middle East, and it was sobering, and it was a really good speech. He he covered everything. Well, he also mentioned the six-year-old Palestinian boy who was murdered just for being Palestinian, and he mentioned that he, he had called his father... I think it once again demonstrated his leadership in times of crisis. And I kept thinking, my God, what if Trump was president right now during all of this? The contrast is is just so startling. I want to talk a little bit about the leadership that I think that we Americans are all desperately craving. But do you think it will translate? Do you think people will remember this in six months when they're hopefully isn't a war, but most likely things are completely heated up. How do you think it's going to play out? Well, it just depends who the intended audience is. If it's the people at home who are idiots and Trumpsters and right-wing fanatics, probably nothing. But I think it says a lot to the world. It says a lot to our allies that, yes, this is the America that we, we know, that we trust, and we rely on. It's resolute and it's unequivocally supporting democracy and, and its democratic allies. This is the best of America. This is what yes. the world is waiting to, has been waiting to. Yeah. And so, you know, this week has just been crazy. You know, the media had gone nuts after the, the hospital mm-hmm. attack in Gaza City. New York Times had this outrageously irresponsible headline without anything being confirmed. We still have Congresswoman. Rashida Tlaib's tweet up, it says, quote, Israel just bombed the Baptist hospital, killing 500 Palestinians. Just like that. POTUS, this is what happens when you refuse to facilitate a ceasefire and help de-escalate. Your war and destruction only approach 
has opened my eyes and many Palestinian Americans and Muslim Americans like me. We will remember where you stood. But you know what, Congresswoman? We're going to remember where you stood four days after both the Israeli and U.S. intelligence and the United States president confirming, not suspecting, confirming that this was a failed rocket attack from within Gaza by the terrorist group Islamic Jihad. You still have on your Twitter page that Israel bombed the Baptist Hospital. And you criticize President Biden for not de-escalating this situation? Well, neither are you. You still have this incendiary tweet. And it's not only deceptive, it's propaganda. You're no better than Trump. You're no better than Marjorie Taylor Greene. You're no better than anyone who lies to help shape a narrative. No matter how dangerous it is, no matter how many protests it causes all over the world, no matter how many people die because of it. Shame on you. Yeah, I think what's important about what happened with the hospital is that all of the open source intelligence that we can trust from places like Bellingcat confirm the same. The other thing, I don't understand. Uh, we, we had a, a massacre in Israel 12 days ago, something like that. 1,400 people died. 4,600 people injured, hostages taken, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Since then, there still has yet to be any massive ground invasion that everyone's fearing, although it certainly looks like it's coming. Hasn't happened yet. All that has happened is that rockets have been fired from Israel, targeting some Hamas installations inside Gaza, causing some destruction, causing some deaths. Uh... At the same time, you have rockets firing from Gaza into Israel, hitting Tel Aviv. You have now fire coming out of Hezbollah in the north from southern Lebanon. Yet there is widespread condemnation of Israel all over the world. Vehemently passionate protests everywhere throughout Europe, the United States, because missiles have come from Israel into Gaza after the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. I mean, is Israel not to respond at all? Do we just say, okay, you know what? What happened October 7th? Let's just forget about that. That doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. So let's, in, an, in a vacuum, let's just look at what Israel has done since, which so far has been limited to some rockets being fired into Gaza. Well, it's not that simple. Well, it is kind of simple no, because if you, if you are condemning what Israel has done in the last 12 days, you're basically saying Israel should not be responding. I wish it was that binary. It's not. And yes, Israel has the right to respond. But the facts on the ground are that there is a humanitarian crisis. The fact that Israel and Egypt and the UN can't seem to come to a resolution about how to help people who are being displaced is the tragedy. The reason why that's happening was precipitated by Hamas. However, you still have all these innocent people who... Uh, but if the people who attacked you, again, in the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, then go back to where they came from and surround themselves in a residential community and fire rockets from residential houses, hospitals, and schools, that's the facts on the ground. So because it, it is binary in the fact of if that's where they are, you then have two choices to go after them where they are or not. They've made that choice. You talk about a humanitarian crisis. There are trucks at the Rafah border. Yes. Waiting for I Egypt to let them in. So there's a humanitarian crisis, but created by who? So I'm still going to ask the same question. If Israel didn't do what it's done in the last 12 days, can somebody please tell me what else it should have done to defend itself? I've still yet to get that answer from anybody. If I could answer that question, then I would be the president of the United States okay, and but, but Israel my, and Egypt and the U.S. My point is it's easy for us here to criticize actions when we cannot come up with alternatives. We're not there. Our lives aren't threatened. We're not a government trying to figure out how to protect itself at the same time, not create more than necessary collateral damage of structures and communities and people. It's a difficult situation, yes. which 
does not, in my opinion, allow for people to just go, yeah, Israel's not doing what it should be doing. It's terrible. It's bad. You know, the other thing, too, is I've been hearing so much about open-air prison. Gazans live in open-air prison, Palestinians in Gaza. Yet you have Hamas, who has managed to somehow figure out how to spend a, a fuckload of money on militia, planes from which to parachute out of, training, building mock kibbutzim from which to stage mock attacks, moving about freely, even going across the border into Israel to stage said attacks. That doesn't sound very prison okay, to me. All, so all true, but again... So let me but, just finish my thing. Okay. So if it is a prison mm-hmm. and Hamas clearly isn't operating as prisoners, right? Then maybe the people who are in the prison are in that prison, not because of Israel per se, but because of Hamas. Of course. It's an untenable situation for the people who live there. You can still have innocent people in a humanitarian crisis, even given everything that you're saying. I don't, I don't know how. The uh. enemy has <laughs> surrounded itself not only with citizens, innocent citizens, but, they're, but are actually using them as human shields. So the only thing then is to expect or not Israel to go, oh shit, man, now we can't go after Hamas and retaliate. I don't put that on them. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm going to first say that I strongly disagree with most of what you just said. Of course you do. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the simple fact is that it has to be proportional and it isn't a matter of telling Israel what to do exactly but you can also comment on what they shouldn't do and the reason why americans can do that is israel is supported by america wouldn't exist without us at this point uh, basically their defense is funded by us so we have a very strong interest in exactly what they do and if they inflame the middle east that's in our interest to try and prevent that that doesn't mean we need to give them the tactics to go in, but we can also say that if they displace a million people and blow up 3,700 buildings, that may be not the way to respond, especially when they have the worst, most right-wing leader they've had in their history. And to quote Thomas Friedman, who I don't particularly like, but I will agree with him on this, it has been Netanyahu's policy to pit Hamas against the Palestinian leadership for years because he wants that. He's essentially empowered Hamas because he never thought they had this much power, but it was in his interest to damage Palestinian control and keep it feckless and useless. So there's a lot of blame in terms of where Palestine is in terms of- They weren't feckless and useless on October 7th. No, the Palestinian leadership, I'm talking about separate from Hamas. I'm going to ask the question again, what should be done? First off, I'm not going to say exactly what should be done. Nobody knows because exactly what can't. should be done. But what we can do is say what can't be done. We would all agree that you can't use a tactical nuclear weapon to yeah, damage but you're, you're, you're throwing out a, but you're, in my you're, opinion, you're a, no dismissing offense, a ridiculously a million people. extreme position. But I think right now they're they fired rockets position. so far into Gaza. No, no, they bombed. That... With, they're not rockets. They're bombs. Okay. And they've knocked down 3,700 buildings, turned off the water, turned off the electricity. The water is on. And a million people are displaced out of a t- population of 2 million. Okay. But and 4,000 are dead. Give me the alternative. Uh, believe me, there's something less than what they're doing. But you don't know what it strategic. is. I know they've already exceeded what they should be doing. I think I, that's a very uh, privileged position to take sitting here in New York. I think Israel is fucking up now because they had the moral high ground in the beginning and they are damaging that moral high ground. How come temporary. you're not angrier at the media and Rashida Tlaib and people who are inflaming the, the, the situation with actions they're taking, things they're saying. They're, this they're, is my problem with people who are attacking Israel. They're ne- ne- there's neglecting of all the other shit that presents a very cogent alternative I, I don't think the balance side. is the same. I don't totally think the, the New York Times headline was good. I think it was a terrible decision. You don't think the people r- protesting all over the world were not in part motivated by the initial response to the blame, the headline in the I, New York Times, Israel I, bombs, I think according what, to Palestinians, uh, that was the headline, according to Palestinians. It was a, it was a terrible headline. But, but I you think don't think what, there's a cause and effect with that? I think the cause and effect is... A million people displaced and 4,000 or 5,000 dead. So here, here's the other thing, Maddie, too, that you're right. There's been uh, thousands of rockets going into Gaza. But the flip side can be said for Hamas. There's been uh, 
6,000, so many rockets going from Gaza into Israel that the Iron Dome system is almost depleted. So this is a fact of war. Once the war starts, the missiles, the rockets, the bombs, the destruction, the killing, it, it happens. It happens on both sides. And this is why war is terrible and should always be avoided. Unfortunately for Israel, in an asymmetric war, they have to adhere to a different, higher level, a higher standard than Hamas. They have the moral responsibility to do the best they can not to create more harm proportionally in response to what's going on. But just, of course, they have a right to respond and forcefully. However, this may have exceeded at this moment in ways that are going to hurt Israel. And I don't think they can help it with Netanyahu being in charge. Yeah, and I wouldn't disagree with much of what you're saying, except I will say that when comments are made like the best they can, I just get back to, I don't know what that is. I'm not sitting in the situation room. I'm not sitting with Netanyahu, with Benny Gantz, with the war cabinet, with the emergency government. I don't know what those options are. I don't know how deeply they flushed out other alternatives. I don't know what took them to get to this conclusion that this is the path they need to take. So all I'm saying as an American Jew sitting and sipping my pumpkin spice latte in New York, I have to bow out of that conversation because we weren't attacked. New York wasn't attacked. Jews in America weren't attacked. It's a complicated situation. This was a horrific massacre which requires a response, and there are moving parts on the ground which make it much more complicated than if Israel was attacked by Egypt and could just go and blow the smithereens out of the military installations and fight an army that's parading around in uniform. And like, It's just complicated. War sucks. War sucks. That's all yeah. I can say. And that's not a compassionateless, empathyless statement. I get it all, and I agree with all of that in terms of human life. But I just don't know what the alternative is. Well, it's not occupation, that is for sure. Since Bill Clinton, every American president has talked about a two-state solution. The Netanyahu administration does not even entertain mentioning that. And if you want to have any kind of peace there, you have to deal with the players that are there, whether it's Jordan or Egypt and all the other players, and if you are unwilling to discuss a two-state solution and your answer is to occupy Gaza, then you are just perpetuating well, the disaster that you've already lived through and partially created. Number one, the people who reject the two-state solution the most are Arabs and Palestinians. Number two, Gaza has not been occupied since 2005. Israel pulled out of that. Israel also, we shouldn't forget, Israel also pulled out of the Sinai, just gave it back after a war. In wars, you don't get to say, hey, do over. You know, hey, we tried to attack you, we failed. So the, the land you took, we want it back now. So it, it takes two parties. The problem is that Israel's partners in this process are people who say, you all should be dead and you all don't have a right to exist. So I agree with you about Netanyahu. It's a no-brainer. Throw his ass out. Throw him in jail. He's a fucking corrupt son of a bitch. All I'm saying is that's only one side of this. The other side is not helping either and hasn't. The problem is that Netanyahu is representing the side that is Israel at the moment and pursuing his goals. I get back to the same place of there's shit that's going on on both sides, but October 7th didn't exist, we would be, to my glee, sitting here talking about Trump all morning. So we can't lose sight of that. Everybody, everybody, including Thomas Friedman, says, I don't know what they should have done, but I know this is bad. It's easy for someone to sit in the room and go, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And then if you say to them, what will work? They go, I don't know. You have to have the alternative if you're going to say the other thing doesn't work and should stop. No, I don't, I don't think you have to have the exact alternative. I mean, as I said before, there are other options that are also terrible that they are engaging in now. And I don't need to have an alternative to know that that's a bad option. Okay. 
Well, let's talk about something I think we all do agree on, which is the craziness in the house. Dennis Hastert was an admitted pedophile. He abused multiple young boys and tried to hide his horrific actions with payoffs. Jim Jordan is only accused of enabling sexual abuse, and the victims weren't children. He is the progress we need. Jim Jordan, not as bad as a pedophile. Now that's from The Daily Show, and what makes that clip brilliant is that it's literally real life. I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. He's not a pedophile. I mean, it's just, it's, you have to laugh, because if you don't laugh. I mean... Jim Jordan, we all know he's spent 16 years already of being on Fox News and throwing bombs and taking his jacket off. He's very good at taking his jacket off and rolling up his sleeves. But he hasn't obviously attempted to do any legislation, which is exactly why he should be in charge of the House, apparently. Yeah. Well, he's attempting his third run at the speakership this morning as we speak. We don't know yet what the outcome of that was, but in all likelihood, he will have lost. how and when does this ever end? I mean, the, the crazy eight, they're never going to agree with the other side. And the other side, they're literally sending death threats. Play this clip. Why is your husband such a pig? Why would he get on TV and make an asshole of himself? Because he's a deep state prick? Because he doesn't represent the people? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to come follow you all over the place. We're going to be up your ass nonstop. We are now Antifa. We're going to do what the left does because your of a husband gets on TV. Oh, the bad guys, they did so. I'm going to vote for Kevin McCarthy, a piece of shit who everybody knows. And for his piece of shit ass, talk about Americans who are actually fighting for Americans as the bad people. There's everything about him. So you, your husband and we are gonna, we, we're not like the left, we aren't violent, but we're gonna follow your ass, every appointment you have, everything you f***ing do. Your, your husband's an asshole, you should f***ing talk to his stupid ass. We're at war, Israelis being killed, and your dumb husband is acting like a f***ing two-year-old. No wonder, he's a f***ing warmongering piece of shit. So listen, you're gonna keep getting calls and emails, I'm putting all your information over the internet now, everybody else's, and you will not be left alone because your husband, Jim Jordan, or more conservative, or you're going to be molested like you can't ever imagine. And again, nonviolently. First of all, I just feel like we learned a new criminal term, (laughs) nonviolent molestation. (laughs) Like, what, what is that? I'm just, what shaking, is I'm just shaking my head. I don't know. I can't even respond. I mean, this is... I feel like my head's going to spin. This is crazy. It is It is crazy. But And we laugh because it is, it is crazy, but it's not crazy to the woman and her husband who received that message. And also, Ken Buck, Republican Ken Buck yesterday said, quote, I have, I have had four death threats. I've been evicted from my office in Colorado because the landlord is mad with my voting record on the speaker issue, family members have been approached and threatened. There's going to be some tension. Jim Jordan's mob, I mean, these guys are like the fucking mafia. This guy in particular who left that message, he's all over the place. You know, he's like, like if Jeffrey Dahmer was like, I'm going to cut your head off, but not literally. Like what, <laughs> you know, like what is he talking about? Molestation. I don't know about you, but I know that if any family member of mine got that message, I'd surely vote for Jim Jordan. I mean, <laughs> that would be my next move. I'm voting as soon as we're done here. I'm voting for him and I'm not even in Congress. The Democrats are going to clean up this mess like they always do. There is no other solution. It's not even chaotic. It's like chaotic is not even a, a strong enough. Mm-hmm. This is like like malignant dysfunction like it's i don't even know what the, what terms to use but it's like the they are fucking children we don't have a functioning government we don't have a functioning house because of republicans democrats are functioning nancy pelosi had a four four seat lead she never had this kind of chaos that's why she got my big balls award <laughs> last year <laughs> all right let's get to our winners and losers 
My winner, President Biden for his leadership. My loser, congressional Republicans who are dismantling our government. Hmm. I definitely will second on the Joe Biden being a winner for his wisdom and humility that he showed when he went to Israel. I would also give Akeem Jeffries a win for getting the most votes of anyone for, I think he's gotten over a thousand votes now for being speaker. My loser is Alex Jones, the InfoWars broadcaster who has to pay most of the $1.4 billion he owes Sandy Hook families. And he can't use Chapter 11, according to a judge, to evade paying. Mm -hmm. My winner, Joe Biden, who once again demonstrated strength and leadership, as well as compassion and empathy, things that have been sorely missing from the White House for many years. My loser, Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, for her truly disgusting display of dangerous propaganda. Which brings me to our weekly rant, which is going to be a little longer than usual. Fair warning, and Maddie's going to hate it. Jen might be, eh, I agree with that. I disagree with that. Like, so that's my setup. It seems people are forgetting that the barbaric Hamas terrorist attack on Israel on October 7th ever happened. So let me remind them. 1,400 innocent Israelis were slaughtered that day in the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. 4,600 were injured and 200-plus kidnapped. Civilians, grandmothers, dragged from their homes, beaten, tortured, shot, and killed. Young festival attendees hunted down and killed like animals. Women brutally raped. Men, women, and children burned alive. Babies shot, burned, and beaten to death. Soldiers beheaded. Corpses dragged through the streets, their mutilated, bloodied bodies spit on, desecrated, and displayed like trophies. Israel, to me, was afforded about, I don't know, 24, 48 hours of sympathy and support before the wheels of anti-Semitism began turning again and the hatred returned. Witness the rush to blame Israel for allegedly killing 500 people in a hospital bombing that we now know was an Islamic jihad misfire from within Gaza. That's because the world hates Jews. Always has, always will. Ever since the beginning of time, Jews have been on the receiving end of violent, deadly persecution. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, Russian pogroms, the Holocaust are just a few of the more notable examples. But here's the thing. All of this occurred before the state of Israel was created, before there was any anger over occupation or quote-unquote open-air prisons and any humanitarian crises that existed. Jews were slaughtered just for being Jews, period. Jews are also witnessing the meteoric rise in anti-Semitism in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere, and the chilling sight of Nazis now marching openly in the streets of America. And we're outraged that the former United States president had Jew-hating white supremacists over for dinner at the White House. We're aghast that white nationalism is essentially now the platform of one of our two major political parties. Make no mistake, Israel has been under siege since its inception in 1948, the target of many unprovoked attacks from neighboring countries, including Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and from terrorist organizations, including Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, and the PLO. They are surrounded by enemies who literally have in their charters the annihilation of the Jewish people and the destruction of the state of Israel. Achieving peace under that circumstance seems a luxury. Simply staying alive is the primary goal. Look, I hate seeing anyone die, especially the innocent, the children, anyone. I abhor oppression of any sort, no matter where it exists or who's responsible for it. But here's the thing. No civilians would be dying in Gaza right now, and there would be no humanitarian crisis if October 7th never occurred. War is ugly. War is destructive. War is deadly. That's why assholes shouldn't start them. But once they do... The enemy doesn't get to call foul at the retaliation, especially if they're cowardly hiding in residential areas and firing rockets from private homes, hospitals, and schools. I don't have the solution for creating peace between Israel and Palestinians. At this point, that may be even a pipe dream, given the passion, rage, and intransigence of the parties on both sides. But I do know one thing. Israel needs to defend itself and protect her citizens making sure that another massacre like that one that occurred on October 7th never happens again. I don't know how they do that without destroying Hamas. And those condemning Israel over its current war tactics and plans aren't offering any viable alternatives. All right, let's get to David Jolly. 
David is an attorney, political consultant, NBC and MSNBC political analyst, and former member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Florida from 2014 to 2017. His work has been published in the Washington Post, Time Magazine, Newsweek, USA Today, Roll Call, CNN.com, NBCNews.com, Newsmax, The Washington Times, and The Tampa Bay Times. After leaving Congress, he became a prominent critic of former President Trump and in 2018 announced he'd left the Republican Party. David, welcome into the back room. Hey, it's great to be with you, Andy. First thing I want to ask you about is Israel. President Biden gave a speech last night. People like Brit Hume was uh, gushing over it. So it must have been good, I guess, to the folks on the right. What did you think of it? I'll tell you the moment that I think he captivated a lot of hearts and minds was actually his remarks earlier in the day in Tel Aviv, where mm -hmm. we saw him lead with the empathy uh, that he is so well known for, while also making the case for an enduring and resilient effort to defeat Hamas, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, I think, a much larger, larger proposition than we even realize, uh, and probably a much longer one that will take a year or two, including a year or two of expanded commitment of the U.S. and the West. So, look, I think Joe Biden, in addressing the nation, was it necessary uh, to address the nation to make the case for additional money for Ukraine and Israel? Uh, perhaps. He clearly thought it was. I don't know that that topic can land the way a president ever really wanted to. I think the most important thing is that he is now submitting this aid package to Congress. And that was the message that I think was maybe left a little untold, which was Congress, now is the time for you as the representatives of the voters to give voice to this aid package and make a decision. Are we as a nation going to continue our commitment to protecting freedom in Ukraine and in Israel, or are we going to waver in this moment? Clearly, the president has said this is not a time to waver. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get into the chaos in the House in a second, but on a related level, you tweeted something about Chuck Schumer and the Senate should take up this bill, yeah. pass it, and then show America what what governing looks like. Yeah, that's right. Look, I, I am a creature of the House for almost 30 years, I guess, I've worked with the House. And I think because the House is more like a playground, not just right now, but always, right? Every two years, it's a little more volatile and it's turning over. We sometimes forget to look at the Senate as a, as a strong political actor that can set a political narrative for the country. We're always looking at the House and constitutionally, I guess it's set up that way. The Speaker of the House is third in line to be president or second, depending on how you, how you rack and stack it. So my point is, in the absence of a functioning House, in the absence of a Speaker of the House, while we have a time of national and international crisis where the world is on fire, world is on fire and the president has asked for leadership in providing aid, hey, why don't we look to this U.S. Senate? Why don't we look to Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell to say, what is the nation's posture on providing aid to Ukraine and Israel? We know the presidents. Show us from Capitol Hill the commitment to do this. We don't see that from the Senate right now. And we don't see it from Chuck Schumer right now. I know his commitments there. He traveled Israel. Let's see the very public leadership of the U.S. Senate in this moment. If that's where the heartbeat of the country is, lead. Bring the House along behind you if you have to. But this is an opportunity for the U.S. Senate, right? You know, over the years, we've always heard how the Senate are the adults in the room, right? Which is essentially what you're, right. you're getting to. So why right. wouldn't Chuck Schumer do this? <laughs> um, the Senate has a very different op tempo than the House. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, traditionally the House passes like 5,000 pieces of legislation and the Senate passes 500. It's a much slower, more deliberative body, and it's set up to be that way. Six-year terms, you can be appointed as part of the institutional uh, architecture of the, of the U.S. government system, whereas the House, you must be elected. There are no appointments. There's no way to get to the House unless your neighbors say, run up there and make my case for me. And so we typically see the Senate be a little slower, but this is not the time. It's not the time given the world affairs, but it's also not the time given the fact that the House is broken and can't function. Mm -hmm. We just, they're not wired that way, Andy. And that was the reason for that short tweet is they should be. Right now is the time to see that type of increased op tempo 
from Schumer and McConnell, because the Senate also takes 60 votes to do anything. You can't just do it through mm -hmm. one party leadership. But this is the moment. This is the issue. This is the time for them to lead. Yeah, it's well, it's the desperate measures for desperate times. I mean, we That's are right. in a state of chaos. And even if we weren't helping two allies involved in two wars with two of our great enemies, under normal circumstances, to not have a Speaker of the House for weeks, to not have a functioning uh, House of Representatives would be a crisis on its own. But yet here we are yeah. with, with appropriations <laughs> needs and, you know, we're sending warships to the region. Like, it, it is just unfathomable to me, the, the, the level of yes. chaos. And so your point about the Senate, it's just like, why not? This is the time this to do something like, like that. Do you I will tell you, it generationally how far governing has now slid. And this is this is true of both parties, really institutionally. You know, all of my work has been in the appropriations arena. And it's just the subject matter through which I grew up on Capitol Hill and then had the opportunity to serve. What is mind blowing in this moment, even as you see House Republicans say, well, I want the new speaker to give us our appropriations plan. Andy, the fiscal year started October 1. Historically, now it's been 20 years when I say historically, 20 years since we actually operated this way, but the federal budget had to be appropriated and passed by October 1. Mm -hmm. They're talking about what would be our plans to run a temporary budget through April as though somehow that should be normal. This is now normal governing. So even though the House is in crisis, I would lay that burden on the Senate as well. How have we decided to let the normal operations of government routinely year over year over year, slip past that October 1 deadline, it's, it's simply because we don't have leaders that are now full-time committed to, to running the actual government. And that's just a, you know, that's a weakness in our system that in moments of crisis really is exposed. Mm -hmm. So I want to table the House just for a second and jump back to Israel. So speaking of crisis situations, things are explosive there, literally and figuratively. And this is before the imminent ground invasion. So there's been missiles going back and forth. This was the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, 1,400 dead, 4,600 injured, a couple of hundred hostages taken, including Americans. So America is involved in this in a very tangible, direct way. But there's so much condemnation of Israel now and that hospital attack and the misreporting of it and Rashida Talab's, Talib's uh, tweet that still remains up a lot of that is contributing to the protests and the anger and passion behind them. You know, I think about David French's op-ed in the Times last week about the rules of engagement and distinction. You know, we're not dealing with a government. We're not dealing with an army. Israel's not dealing with tanks in the streets that are easily identified. And they're centered in Gaza City. They're, they're surrounded by civilians firing rockets from residences and hospitals yeah. and schools and using their own people as human shields. So that's where the enemy is. How does Israel go after the enemy without the kind of collateral damage that we're seeing and may see more of? What is the pr appropriate response? What's the alternative? Yeah, I, I don't know that they can. And I think the, the anxiety and the angst and the heartbreak, even for sober policymakers, is this is a moment where there may be no good options. Mm -hmm. there, are, there really are no good options. And so let's take the U.S. interests first and then talk about Israel's potential strategy. Israel is an ally that furthers the U.S. and the West security interest across the globe. It is, notwithstanding our own allegiances and alliances with Israel as a community of faith and as a democracy in the Middle East, Imagine the Middle East without Israel as a U.S. partner, where we couldn't have that foot in the ground. That is a matter of U.S. national security interest in a very volatile region. It, it might contribute to more volatility, as I know some critics would say, but it simply is true that they are our stakeholder in the Middle East as a protector and in furtherance of U.S. national security interests. So the U.S. is going to ally with Israel, and that is not going to change despite the criticisms of Tlaib and, and others. Mm -hmm. So what does Israel now do? You know, this, this comparison to 9-11 does have a lot of relevance because of what it means for just after 
whatever we got right, whatever we got wrong in the post 9-11 world, and Joe Biden referenced that in Tel Aviv this week, what we do know is we were facing a non-nation state actor where there was an asymmetry in how war is engaged in. And that is the case for Israel. There is no environment, there is no world in which Israel will allow Hamas to continue to control Gaza. This is where we get into the no good solutions. They're all bad choices because the end result has to be the same for Israel, which is the elimination of Hamas's control of Gaza. And the only way to do that is going to be through a military engagement that creates enormous innocent lives that are lost in part because Hamas uses those innocent lives as a tool, but also because of the asymmetry in warfare. This is not a traditional nation state fight. This will be a street by street, home to home mm -hmm. fight for Israeli ground forces that ends with the obliteration of Hamas. And now go back to the alliances that we're talking about. You will see the US and the West ally with Israel as they accomplish this goal through no good options. And so that is where not only do we have some, some legitimate questions for US foreign policy, of course, we should always be self-examining, but it also takes us to the brink of nation state engagement. What happens if Iran decides to get involved? Now the US definitely has to get involved. Mm -hmm. Russia and China back Iran, the West creates an alliance. This is why I think you see Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken being so involved in this because we do need Israel to prevail over Hamas, but it has to be done in a way in a world of bad options that still ends with the world at peace. There are no good options right now, and we shouldn't pretend there are. And look, nobody likes to see death. No one likes to see innocent people die, children on yeah. either side. No one likes to see destruction. War is ugly. War is destructive. War is deadly. That's why people shouldn't start them. But what do you say to the people who point to the humanitarian crisis, the ensuing catastrophic loss of life that may occur on both sides, but but what do you say to those who are concerned about that at the same time Israel is trying to accomplish the goals that you just laid out in a no good option terrain? So what I would suggest is this, let's accept the truth that Hamas engaged in a, engaged in a horrific act of terror and it is understood why Hamas now must be eliminated. That is not a conversation about equity. We can have conversations about equity around the history of the region and who lays claim to the land and so forth, but there is no equitable two sides to, the, to debating the fact that Hamas engaged in a horrific act of terror and now the retribution is to eliminate them. So rather than what I what I would suggest is rather than present this as a binary argument where you have to be on one side or the other, why don't we agree to focus on the appropriate policies that can save as many civilian lives as possible? Mm -hmm. And I would point to the fact that, you know, about a week ago, Israel said you have 24 hours to evacuate. That wasn't actually the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, they 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 did not start the ground war in 24 hours. But they tried to create the urgency. Mm -hmm. And then you saw Blinken and others try to work with Egypt and Jordan and other nations to say, listen, there has to be some relief valve to get some innocent civilians out of, the, out of Gaza and mm -hmm. out of the war zone before the real fighting starts. That is a policy that all sides, I think, should be able to focus in on and support. And does that mean that Israel holds off just a bit longer before the aggressive ground campaign to eliminate Hamas. Mm -hmm. And does that mean that Biden and Blinken and others engage more directly and more strongly with Saudi and Egypt and other partners in the region to say, we need your help. There is no other option here. We have not seen that cooperation from other nations mm -hmm. in the region. We need it. And so maybe if you find yourself to be on the side of Israel and the U.S. security interests in the area, or if you are a protester right now saying, I want to cease fire because I support the Palestinians. Maybe what we can all agree on is to focus our energy on a change of policies of nation partners in the area to say, give refuge to civilians to leave the country or to leave Gaza and allow then Israel to go in and extract the price they need to to eliminate Hamas. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great point you just raised because we saw the other day uh, King Abdullah of Jordan literally saying, there will be no refugees in Jordan. Right. And, and I'm going to speak for Egypt, too. 
You literally yeah, spoke for right. Egypt. And so when you talk about yeah. a humanitarian crisis, to your point about the 24 hours is now five times that amount. Israel is right. clearly trying not to cause catastrophic death. That's but right. there's a limit to what it alone can do. If Egypt doesn't open the, the Rafa border on the south, if Jordan doesn't let in refugees. I mean, if Egypt and Jordan said, hey, we're going to send two days worth of planes for the next 48 hours, whoever wants to get on those planes right. and get out, guess what? There would be no humanitarian crisis. So Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're certainly mitigating it by a large stretch. So I think I just see so much displaced, misplaced anger and overreaction coming at Israel and a seemingly overlooking of what actually started all this, which was, again, I say this as a Jew, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. How is Israel supposed to respond to that? Our, our politics... Um is exercised domestically, but I'm sure around the world, it's exercised in a very low information space. And in high intensity environments, that, that really handicaps us. You know, I, I talked about October 1 and appropriations. I'm a wonk. I, and, and my wife used to say when I was in office, stop talking about details. Nobody cares or understands. And, and there's some truth to that, right? Our politics is very reflexive. It operates in a low information space simply because we're all trained in different fields. We're not trained in foreign policy and appropriations and so forth. And that's where then the tribalism is kind of our second mm -hmm. kneecap, which is it is reflexive to say, if this side is doing this, then I'm going to be opposed to it. And, and then what is the salve for that? What is the cure? It really has to be sober voices of leadership that make a convincing case for how to get us through this. I'm not sure we're seeing all of those. I know Listen, and I'm a lifelong Republican. I left the party in 18. I ally with Democrats now. I only say that for what I'm about to say next. I do think Joe Biden is doing a remarkable job in this moment, given all of the challenging circumstances. And I wish we were in an environment where we could see a little more bipartisanship towards that type of leadership. I think we will see bipartisanship. I know we will in a vote to provide assistance to Israel. But it doesn't mean as much if you're voting to provide assistance as a Republican, but to turning around and saying Joe Biden created this moment, he's a terrible leader. Mm -hmm. That's not helping in this environment. No, and to the contrary, just imagine if Trump was in office right now. What a I can't right. I mean, that, that, that that's be. really true. Yeah. It would be a nightmare. So speaking of nightmares, let's switch to the House. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think as we speak right now, there is a, a vote going on. Uh, this is uh, Jim Jordan's. You know, uh, third attempt. What a shit show. I mean, Jordan doesn't seem to be yeah. anywhere near achieving victory or ever will. So where does it go? Yeah. So so look, a little background. I, I, I've i had a good run at Vegas odds on all of these house dynamics because I worked for the house for 25 years. Um, I predicted McCarthy wouldn't become speaker. He did. My wife, again, because she's the one with all the wisdom in our house, she said, look, you weren't wrong. You were just early. He ended up losing it for all the same reasons you said he wouldn't get it. Um, and so I say I've, I've been able to forecast this pretty well, only because my point now is there's no way to forecast this. We are now in the all bets are off. Don't put any money in any direction. So with that caveat, although Jim Jordan has said he will get there and he is doubling and tripling down and he's now using all of the pressure of conservative media and, and the grassroots, I don't think he will get there. And but for his own vanity, he will be in a position where he feels pressure to drop out, I think, this afternoon, if he indeed loses any more votes. Mm -hmm. If on this third vote today he gains a few votes, then he could make the case to stay in and work mm -hmm. it a little bit more. But he is so far behind mm -hmm. that if he loses more votes today, but still says to the conference, give me more time to work it, now he's freezing out other candidates. He's obstructing the, the opportunity for the conference to find somebody else and to get the floor back working. Now it truly is just a Jim Jordan project, not a House Republican project. And I think that starts to become untenable for Jordan. So I don't think it's Jordan. I, it's a terrible analogy, but I was on the Hill when Denny Hastert was elevated, and it's almost becoming a Hastert situation because in that case, Newt Gingrich was out. He had all the power in the world. And then there was this heir apparent that was going to be the, you know, it was Bob Livingston at the time from Louisiana. He's the guy, everybody rallied around him. 
the morning of the vote, Larry Flint, the hustler publisher, published something on Livingston and he was done and the mm. house was in chaos and there was nobody else. I think we're getting to the, there is nobody else. And in that environment, it almost becomes easier to find a consensus candidate. I think you reach down to somebody the country doesn't know, which is what they did with Dennis Hastert. And so is that Tom Emmer, perhaps? Mm -hmm. Is that uh, Hearn, I believe, is the leader of the conservative group right now? It could be a name we don't know that the party says, look, let's give this guy a shot for 14 months. We'll revisit it after the next election. There just seems to be so much anger amongst the sides, the the warring factions. I mean, yesterday apparently someone wanted to knock out Matt Gates physically, the cursing and the, <laughs> yeah. yelling, the scream. Like I wish I was a fly in that room. But people seem so entrenched. The you know the intransigence. It's hard to fathom them ever getting to that consensus point. If the world wasn't on fire, the Democrats would say, let's just sit back and get the popcorn and watch this play out. Right. But there is this deadline of government funding. There's Israel, there's Ukraine and others. But you hit on something very important, which is just the raw vitriol and distrust and hatred among Republicans. Because mm -hmm. here's here's the example I use. There's There's always been this little, these murmurs, we saw it yesterday, accelerate that maybe Republicans and Democrats could agree on a temporary situation, two, four, six weeks, where at least they can move legislation. And the question became, well, should Democrats help and Republicans, or are they going to work with Democrats? Here's the thing, Andy. Republicans could do even just that all on their own. A power sharing for four or six weeks dilutes the GOP agenda. And so Republicans don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. But just the Republicans, if they trusted themselves enough, just among themselves, mm -hmm. could say, we are going to reopen the floor for two weeks under Patrick McHenry to pass aid to Israel and to finish appropriations. And if the politics aren't there for Ukraine, though I think they should be, Republicans don't have to do it. It could be a hard right agenda for two weeks, but they won't even do that because they don't trust each other to govern. And that's where I, it is not that the House is broken. It is that the Republican conference is broken. Mm -hmm. And we're just watching it play out. I also think it's the culmination of this. For now, at least 15 years, you know, Reagan said government isn't uh, doesn't solve problems. It is the problem. Yes, that has been the ethos of republicanism, less government. But it changed 15 years ago to government's the enemy. That, and, and then when when the Tea Party and Trumpism came up, it was we've got to shut it down and blow it up. So how then do you elevate a Jim Jordan with a Matt Gates philosophy that government's the enemy? but I want you to trust me with the keys to administer it. That's where the dissonance comes in because there just aren't enough people that believe governing is what Republicans should do. If there's a Democrat in the White House and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, they don't believe you should actually work with them. So how do you then run for speaker or get speakership votes saying, I don't believe in this institution, but trust me to be the speaker? Mm. This has been a long time coming. I don't know how they get out. You tweeted something about John Rutherford, congressman from Florida, uh, and you referred to the queen of the hill rule. Right. What were you driving at with that? So that's actually an archaic Senate procedure where they can't get consensus, but they all agree that whoever comes out with the most votes on something, then they're all going to support it. Rutherford is one of those surprised people that's opposed Jordan. He's doing it because he's an appropriator. The appropriators are natural enemies of Jordan. Appropriators have to keep the government open. Jordan wants to shut it down. Mm -hmm. So Rutherford's uh, kind of not quite a never Jordan, but he, he's opposed him from the beginning. And it's a big moment for Rutherford. He's not someone who typically jumps out there. He has proposed that secret ballot, all the Republicans get in the room and you write down the top two names that you want to vote for. So it might be McCarthy and Scalise, it might be Scalise and Jordan. It might be Jordan and who knows. And then they all go and get counted. And whoever gets the most votes, it's just a single vote, doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a majority. Whoever gets the most votes, they all agree. You know, it's a blood oath. <laughs> they all go to the floor and they vote for that person. I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> um, but it shows the desperation that Republicans are trying to get themselves out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And you also tweeted, quote, Dems are in the driver's seat. So what did you mean by 100%. that? 100%. In terms of what 100%. that, how should that play out? And so I wrote an op-ed as all this started to happen when Gates was going to call for McCarthy to be 
deposed. I said, listen, Dems, don't send a life, uh, you know, a life raft to McCarthy. Let him sink. Let him sink. Because there was a question, should Dems support McCarthy? Is he better than the next alternative? I don't think he is. I think McCarthy launched the impeachment, refused to cooperate with the J6 committee, broke his promises to Biden. He operates in bad faith. He ends up where Jordan starts. Like there's no actual difference in how they govern. Mm -hmm. It would just take McCarthy longer to get where Jordan actually starts at. So no ideological reason or trust reason to work with McCarthy. Here's my point. If Republicans can solve this themselves, they're going to solve it themselves. That's not, Democrats can't control that. There's nothing they can do that, that allows Republicans to see their breaking point or not. That will happen as Republicans. Mm -hmm. So when the time comes that Republicans say, okay, we have to work with Democrats, mm -hmm. Democrats control then how, do, what does that look like? And in my simple proposal, and there's a lot of nuance to house rules, but this is the, the Cliff Notes version is, you could say to Republicans, we will empower the House majority to operate for six weeks, 10 weeks, choose your time. There are only, I said, three things that will come up under regular order. You could write this into the rules package, a temporary rules package. The only three things that will come up under regular order with a 51% vote threshold would be the budget, the appropriations process, aid to Israel, and aid to Ukraine, which understand Republicans don't really want. And it's going to come up under an open process. Any member can offer an amendment, everything gets voted on. It would still largely end in a Republican agenda, but I think you'd see Ukraine pass. I think you would see some bipartisanship mm -hmm. reflected in the final products. And then within that rules package, you could say any other legislation needs to be by two thirds majority. There's actually a rule now, they use it on Monday nights that when they pass post office namings and other non-controversial things that says you can abandon all the rules if you can get two thirds of the vote. So you could do that. And, and I think that's where Dems hold the leverage. It's not going to be shut down impeachment and do this and do that, because ultimately Republicans will regain their own control of the House. But in the next six weeks, Dems could be a partner that says, we'll let you push these three bills. If you give us an open floor to offer our amendments and see if the votes are there, let's get the country working again while you all take your time to figure out your own family crisis. Mm -hmm. so let's shift to 24. I would love you to start with Biden and just... Help me understand, why are his numbers so awful? Uh, um, so look, on, on Joe Biden, part of the numbers will always be what they are now between the two parties. We just we have fallen back into such a tribal posture that one party could nominate Jesus Christ himself and he'd only get 55%. So um, that is a ceiling for Joe Biden, regardless of how well he performs. But I, you know how I would, I would paint the challenge for Joe Biden? What is most reassuring about him, if you saw his speech last night, you saw him in Tel Aviv, you see how he approaches matters in a very sober way. What is most reassuring about Joe Biden is he's a throwback to a steadier time and a steadier hand and a more presidential posture. But that's also his greatest weakness. Right. When the other side wants to light the world on fire and throw bombs and they expect all this excitement, you're not getting excitement from Joe Biden. And so I'm good with bring back boring. I think it's fantastic, but, but everybody's a little always unsatisfied in their politics and certainly on the other side. So you're seeing the numbers. The, the one policy number that really is the drag is inflation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is where we operate in the low information space. We can look at the job numbers are good, the economy numbers are good. It could be so much worse, but if the price of milk is 30% higher, cars are higher, education's higher, everything that, that you have to do in life costs more, you feel real wages are not the same as what they used to be. And I think the wild card for Biden in the general election in November, that maybe somewhat out of his control is going to be the economy. If we lack confidence in the economy, that's the biggest challenge for Joe Biden. It's not the overseas matters. But if we have our confidence back on the economy, I think he does very well. I also think he does very well if Republicans nominate Trump compared to another candidate, which DeSantis would be the alternative. But I got to tell you, Andy, I think the DeSantis campaign has done put a fork in it. I think it's done. I think this is Trump's race. DeSantis has had every shot he could to compete with Donald Trump and he's failed. 
Um, I think Nikki Haley could become a little bit of the darling alternative, possibly. But this is Trump's party. It's Trump's race. His grip on this nomination is as tight as it's ever been. Yeah, I think a new poll came out this morning showing like a 50-point lead now between him. (laughs) (laughs) So to your your point. (laughs) Yeah, and, and but that leads to my final question, which is how the hell is this dude twice impeached, four indictments, 91 felony counts. The judge called him a rapist after he was found liable of sexual assault, sidling up to our enemies, alienating our allies. How is he ahead by 50 points? Is the, is the GOP, the electorate, just broken or dead? Brainwashed? Did I don't, what I, is it? What is it? What's happening? You know, some people would say he hijacked the party. I think he walked through the front door into open arms. They were looking for a Donald Trump. You can mm-hmm. look at the evolution from Goldwater to Reagan to Gingrich uh, to to the Tea Party, then to Donald Trump. It's a natural evolution. Um, mm-hmm. I do think, though, and this gets into much deeper themes, I think Donald Trump became a cultural leader and decided to park that movement in a political party. And and the and the architecture of the Republican Party and and the the direction was just right for his cultural movement because it is impenetrable. Facts don't matter. Actual facts don't matter. And the fact that he's been indicted and impeached certainly don't matter. And so that's where I don't think DeSantis can ever overtake a cultural movement that occurred within the Republican Party in the last six years where you see DeSantis having engaged in what we call culture wars. I think it is because of that. He realized talking about economics and tax policy like Jeb Bush and Paul Ryan are a snoozer for Republicans now. They don't care about that. They want a return to leave it to Beaver and to crush diversity and diversity of thought, to marginalize already marginalized communities, and to have a return of white privilege as a matter of policy. And DeSantis saw the opening to try to pursue that as a way to co-opt many of the the themes that Donald Trump ran on, which is, hey, rural America, they're coming for your way of life. They're coming to take away your way of life, which leads then to to making at times violence seem appropriate. If you're coming to take my way of life, then I get to fight back. And look, this is the Republican Party is a tinderbox. It is a post ideological party. It has become a cultural movement. And it's the reason I believe that Donald Trump will again be nominated. And Joe Biden then has a strong hand against Donald Trump. But what he has to figure out, and I, and he will, I know he will, but what we have to see play out is how does he weave kind of protecting the cultural direction of America to resist this impulse back to, to white nationalist America while also talking about issues that matter to us, that put, that put food on the table. How does he weave in and out of those themes about protecting democracy, but also providing for you, the Main Street family, to to be able to rise up and have the life you want. That for Joe Biden is right in front of him as a case to make against Donald Trump. My real last question, uh, Bobby Kennedy, he's going to hurt Trump more than Biden? No, certainly now he is. Yeah, he's, a, he's basically a Republican. He's an anti-vaxxer, truth denier, uh, pop, angry populist. And so if you're a Republican looking for somebody other than Trump, it's not the staid Nikki Haley. It's the wild card and wild cat, Robert Kennedy. Uh, well, the next 12 months are certainly going to be absolutely cray-cray. I hope you'll come back and <laughs> talk to us more about that. This is a great conversation, and I do hope we'll get to do it again. It's been great to be with you. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for coming on. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, And our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And have a great week. 